This morning's scripture reading comes from Exodus chapter 1, verses 17 to chapter 2, verse 4. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. This is the word of the Lord. We're beginning a new series today, and it's a series on the life of Moses. And the book of Exodus, it shows us what it means to be God's people, what it means to be saved. There's this theory that the more scientifically and technologically advanced a society gets, spirituality, faith, religion, church, these things will die away. But that theory has been in retreat as of late. Because most people have discovered over the course of time that you cannot live life without feeling at some point that underneath all the psychological issues, underneath all the sociological and economic issues, there's a spiritual emptiness. There's a spiritual need. Now, maybe not everybody, but most people can't get through life without some moments like that. And the problem really now is that for many people, um, as soon as you begin to look at your resources for faith, your resources for spirituality, uh, you come up against certain words that we've grown up in our generation to really learn to hate, and that's words like sin, words like repentance, words like salvation. We don't like those kind of words. But when you get rid of those words, you really lose hold on the realities that these words actually represent. And so if you want to address the fundamental problem with what's wrong with the world, if you want to know about rescue, about salvation. The life of Moses in the book of Exodus is an excellent place to go. And it's where God is revealed as a rescuer, as a savior, as a redeemer, and he's relentless in his pursuit of his people. And this passage, what we read, is really the introduction. We're going to give you a background and an introduction of this book. Uh, it It covers many, many decades, but it's going to give us a background to the birth and the youth of Moses. And we're going to learn three things from these first two chapters. Uh, And we're going to learn right away about the definition, the meaning of salvation. What it is, the definition of salvation, the context, how we're prepared for that, and lastly, how it's accomplished. How it's accomplished. The definition, the context, the preparation, the accomplishment of salvation. First, we're going to go into what it is, the definition of salvation. Sal- salvation is a rescue from slavery. And slavery, slavery is serving anything in life that we believe is more important than God. Let me give you a background of what, what comes before the passage that we just read. Verses 1 to 7 in chapter 1 of Exodus. You learn about the family of Joseph and Jacob. They came down from Egypt. At the end of Genesis, they came down from Egypt because there was a famine. They were escaping famine. And over the course of time, they resided in Egypt because Joseph rose to a very, very high role in the Egyptian uh, uh, royalty. And uh, the people, the, the Israelites, they multiplied. They flourished. And the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, he was threatened by this large, growing, powerful people who had their own distinct cultural and, and spiritual identity. And so in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, Look, they're becoming too numerous. If a war breaks out, they're going to join with our enemies and they're going to rise up and fight against us. So what does he do? He oppresses them. He oppresses them with forced labor. Slavery. He makes them slaves. 
And they made their lives bitter with hard labor and making brick and mortar. And they were working in the fields, and he was just absolutely ruthless with them. Now, this is not news. This is not new news, at least. Almost everybody, everybody, almost everybody, whether you grew up, grew up in the church or not, you know at least this part of the story, that the Pharaoh took these Hebrews and made them into slaves. Every generation, actually, the last three or four generations, have seen a version of this narrative on film, cartoon, or animation, or not. So this is not news, but in verse 14, just before we get to the part that we read, verse 14, every English translation almost mutes one of the main themes in the entire book of Exodus. Because there we see this Hebrew word, aboda, which is translated as work. They made them work. But the word has a connotation to mean slavery, master. And it's used over and over and over. Uh, there's no English translation to actually put that word uh, in a way without making it repetitive, especially in verse 14. So I'm going to read this to you. In verse 14, in the actual language, it reads like this, that he made their lives bitter with serving, slavery, bitter with serving in brick and mortar, and with every kind of serving, with every kind of serving, he made them serve. Now, why, does the Engl- why do all English, English uh, translations not say it like that? And it's because it's so boringly repetitive. We get the point. We get the idea. He made them work. He forced them into labor. So they just use synonyms. But we're obscuring really one of the main themes of the book, that these people were subjected into slavery with every kind of serving. They ruthlessly made them serve. And therein lies the definition of slavery. We're going to lead into this, but slavery is serving anything, anyone but God. If you serve anything and anyone but God, it makes you a slave. You will be ruthlessly put to work. There's a destructiveness. There's a misery. There's a bitterness. There's labor, hard work. There's repetition. You're caught in this cycle. And the Bible says only, you're only free if you're serving God. If you're serving anyone or anything else, it's going to make you a slave. I'm going to say it another way. Anything else that you go to to increase your potential, increase your power or freedom and joy is actually going to decrease your freedom and power and potential and joy. It's going to make you a slave. You're going to be working for that thing. That's a very major theme. We're going to continue to go into that, develop that. It's very, very vivid in this book, but we often miss the theme because it's so broad, actually. It's so prevalent in this text. Now, Moses, when he goes to Pharaoh, he never says, let my people go. Charlton Heston, if you ever watched the movie The Ten Commandments, says that uh, in, in, in that movie. There's a, a lot of people think that Moses actually said that, but he actually never says it. God actually tells Moses to tell the Pharaoh over, over close to nine or ten times in this book. He says, tell him, let my people go that they may serve me, that they may worship me in the desert. Worship. So you look at the irony. In the beginning of the book, the Pharaoh makes them serve with every kind of serving. But then God tells Moses, tell them, let my people go that they may serve me. It's this, you know, almost like a double entendre because it's the serving God that actually makes us free. If you read the book of Exodus, we always get distracted because the first half of the book of Exodus, literally the first 20 chapters, very, very exciting, lots of special effects. You got the plagues and the miracles, lots of action, fire and blood, the burning bush, everything. Then halfway through the book of Exodus, you go to the other half. Very few people can recount the second half because page after page is what? Law, instructions, directions, building the tabernacle, down to the detail, what you're supposed to be putting on your doorposts, designs on how to construct the veil before you access the holy place. Why does he do that? The book of Exodus starts with slavery, moves into freedom, and ends in worship. Salvation is liberation. Salvation is freedom. Now, modern people, when they hear the word freedom, they put it through their modern interpretive grid. And what they're saying is, freedom is not having any master, right? Freedom is having not any God, not having any Lord, being able to choose what you want to do, being able to live the way you want to live, being able to choose what you think is right. 
And Exodus is really designed to subvert that view, to subvert that definition, because at a, per, at a personal level, it's really a myth. The book of Exodus says that your liberation, your freedom is not finished. God doesn't say, let my people get, go so they can live any way that they want. He says, let my people go that they may worship me. Until you're ravaged by that, until you've committed yourself to that, until you're astounded before the beauty and the glory and the presence of God, what God is saying is, until you're absolutely captivated by that, you're never going to be free. You're never going to be free. You're always going to be held captive to something else. Anything that you place at the center of your life, more than God, makes you a slave. And it's going to put you to hard work. You're going to feel the burden of that. You're going to feel the pressure of that. You're going to feel the misery of that, the joylessness in that. The old book of Exodus subverts the view that you can increase your options, increase your potential, increase your freedom without God. Now, how? Think about this. Everybody in life lives for something. Everybody has something that they want to live for. Everybody's got that. Everybody uh, has something that they can say, if I have that thing, then I have significance. If I have that thing, then I have security, or then I have power. It could even be a religious thing. It could be a religious thing. You could say, the reason I have significance, the reason why I'm secure, the reason why I feel good about myself is because I'm a good person. I'm a devout person. I'm a pious person. Or it could be a very personal thing. It could be a self-gratification thing in your life. You can say, look at my money. Look at my wealth. Look at my career. I've crafted this long and illustrious career for myself. Look at my professional accomplishments. Look at my academic scholarship. Everybody, everybody lives for something. Everybody has something that can, it can say, if I have that, then I feel good. Then I feel complete. If my children just grow up well, then I can rest. If I can just keep my family safe, for whatever the reasons, if I can just put them into a place where they have security in life, then I feel like I've done my duty. I can rest. Anything that you have that makes you feel good in your life about yourself, anything that you have that gives you a sense of worth, apart from God, the Bible says, you're going to be driven by that thing. And what does it do? Inevitably, it puts you into work. You're going to be slaving away for the rest of your life, and all of your happiness will be tied to that success. And all of your misery be, misery will be tied to the failure of that. It'll be tied to that failure. And so circumstances, when they come, they threaten that thing, you feel anxiety. If, they come and dis- if those things actually disappoint you, oh, you become angry. You become so angry. If you get blocked from having those things, it's going to make you absolutely, uh, it's going to give you trouble and anxiety. And if those things get taken away, you feel hopelessness and despair. That's life. We're enslaved to something. And as a result, there's suffering, there's anger, there's anxiety, there's fear, there's despair, there's just a deep sense of loss. Only if God is the most important thing in your life, only if God is at the center of your heart, only if his love is the ultimate source of your security, only if his pleasure with you, his approval of you is the ultimate source of your significance, will you be absolutely free without fear, without anxiety, no matter what, no matter the circumstances, there'll be no despair. So really, the first principle of the book of Exodus is that your journey of liberation, your exodus out of slavery is not complete until it finds its absolute destination in worship and service to God alone. If God is not your master, if God is not the motivational center of your life, you're going to be enslaved to something else. You're going to be enslaved to a false god, something that's not even worthy, really, to, for you putting your highest loyalty, your highest allegiance of your soul into it, something that can't even really support the highest allegiance of your soul. In a time of crisis, lots of people flock today to religious institutions. When 9-11 happened in New York City, churches added two or three extra worship services because people were flocking to the church, and the churches couldn't support that. It happened. It was real. And some people say, well, that's because people are emotionally weak. Karl Marx would say it's because religion is the opiate. They're looking for an escape. Religion is an opiate. It's going to seduce you. It's going to suppress you. 
But if you think about it, that's absolutely not the case. What is, what, what's the meaning of a crisis? That means that something that made you safe at one point in your life, something that allowed you to ma- feel safe in the universe, something that you built your life on because you thought it was a rock on which you could stand, was really a shadow, and it crumbled. It fell apart. And so now when that part of your world falls apart, because you've, you've, you, know, you believe there was a rock that you could stand on, when that part of your life falls apart, you realize all you are is this person, this small person, on a, tumbling and hur- a, on a tumbling rock, really, hurling through space, really at 67,000 miles per hour, at a rotation of 1,000 miles per hour. Life becomes incredibly insecure. Incredibly insecure. A crisis is when you realize the faith that you invested in something was actually misinvested, and now you're looking for a real God. So the first thing we learn is that salvation is a rescue from misery, is a rescue from hard labor, the slavery of serving something other than God. That's what it is. That's, that's salvation. Now, the second part is the context. How we're prepared. How are we prepared individually to become or to experience salvation? And I'm going to say it like this, without making light of it. I'm going to say it like this. God is working behind the scenes in your life, whether you know it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you believe it or not, you may even be running from it, angry about it, but God is working behind the scenes in your life to prepare you through your circumstances. One of the things, if you notice in this chapter, if you go back actually to, your, to a Bible and read the first two chapters of Exodus, one of the things that the writer does brilliantly here is that God isn't hardly mentioned at all in the first two chapters. He's hardly mentioned. In Exodus, what happens? First, the Pharaoh, he decides to oppress the people. He enslaves them. And that doesn't work. It doesn't work for a number of reasons. So then he tries to kill all the male infants, tries to commit cultural genocide. This way, the females of the community will be turned into really uh, concubines or wives. And remember the movie Braveheart? He says, if we can't get them out of here, we have to breed them out. So that's what he's really trying to do. But then that doesn't work. So what does he do? He orders everybody to kill all the newborn uh, male Hebrews. In other words, things after a while are getting worse and worse and worse. There's racism. There's absolute oppression. There's slavery. There's just social injustices rampant. And it's actually condoned by the highest order of government because the highest order of government is allowing these injustices. They want, these are social programs, killing off the male Hebrews. And so there's murder. And there's one person. There's one person that seems like he can do anything. If you're going to read this book, we're going to go into this. But he seems like he could do anything. There's one Hebrew who's given all the resources, all the social capital and training and education, and he screws up. He just royally screws up. He, he, he goes to the act of killing an Egyptian man out of anger. He's, one, he's a Hebrew brought up as an Egyptian. And the act of killing an Egyptian man out of anger and pride, what happens? The result is it alienates him from the very people he's called to lead. And so it puts him in this position where the Pharaoh himself, this man who has really helped to raise him, hears about this. And so he's got to run off into the desert. He's off into the wilderness. That's chapter 2. That's a large part of chapter 2, verse 15 or so. And so before this man, Moses, he had status and he had power and he's proud, but now he's lost his status. And he's lost his power. He's cut off from his people. And he's weak. And he's humbled. His power is actually turned on him. And it's brilliant. All through the first two chapters, the author intentionally hardly mentions God. Two long chapters covering hundreds of years of Hebrew-Israelite history. And God is mentioned for the first time in verse 17, which we read. And he's mentioned one other time, really, in verse 20. Apart from that, he's really not even mentioned And here's what's brilliant about it. This is what's amazing about this text. On one hand, the narrator is conveying to us the natural inclination, the natural inclination for us when things go from bad to worse. Think about your lives. Things get from bad to worse and then even worse. Sometimes the hits just keep on coming. If you were a Hebrew living in this day, 
You see the Egyptian troops rolling into your neighborhood, putting chains on people, beating them, subjecting them. All of a sudden, they lost their jobs, lost any type of whatever community they had, stripped apart from their families, taken to work. And even the children, the women, the wives, you know, the, the men, especially the men, they're, they're thro- thrown into slavery. And they're being beat. And those who, are, uh, those who are resisting people, they're getting killed. And if you're there growing up in that community, what are you going to say? Where is God? This God that was promised to me, where is he? That's what you'd say. In the 1940s, it was understood widely that all the major newspaper and magazines that were coming out, all the periodicals and literature that were coming out in the 1940s, at the, at the witness of the Holocaust, they said, headline news, where is God? God is dead. Where is God? In slavery, a lot of the Hebrews are saying, where was the God of Abraham? Where was the God of Isaac? Where's the God of Jacob when we've been taken as slaves? We hear this all the time, 9-11. One of the headlines in all the periodicals was what? Where was God at 9-11? The narrator is really trying to get this sentiment across. That God seems virtually absent from all of these things in the text. And so we assume that when bad things are happening in our lives, God is not involved, he doesn't care, he's remote, he's uncaring, he's in a, he's basic, or he lacks the power to do anything about it. But we, we read, even in the first two chapters, amazingly, amazingly, even in the long run, every bad thing, even in chapter one, every bad thing that happens gets turned on itself and turns out for the good. Everything the Pharaoh, this is the most powerful man in the empire, in the world actually today, the Egyptian empire at that time, the most powerful empire, the most powerful man in all the world, the known world to date, he orders something, And it doesn't just backfire. But every single time he orders something, it doesn't just backfire. It actually accomplishes the exact opposite of what he wants. Verse 20, chapter 1. He's persecuting them. He's enslaving the children. But what does it do? It leads to acts of bravery. Now you have these people that are rising up, committing acts of bravery. And it actually increases the cultural identity. Then he says, I want you to kill all the male infants. And one of the great ironies of the entire first two chapters of this text is because the Pharaoh ordered the death of all the male uh, children, that's how Moses receives exactly what he needs to lead his people out of Egypt. Because of that, not in spite of it, it's through that, through those orders, Moses comes to life. That's what's happening. That's weakness. That's slavery. That's the depths. God is working through our weakness to prepare you for the heights. Do you believe that? Do you see that? Only because Pharaoh decrees killing all the male infants that one man, Moses, is raised and he's trained up as an Egyptian. Now, most commentators who understand the cultures of those times, they would say that Moses probably would have stayed with his mother. Eventually, his mother's brought into the picture and helps to raise him because they needed a nanny, someone to raise him. So the Egyptian daughter and the Pharaoh, basically, at uh, the consent of the Pharaoh, they, they hire Moses' mother to raise and train him. And most commentators who understand the fact that Hebrew children who were brought up uh, by the Hebrew mothers, it would take about three to four years before the entire Hebrew culture and social makeup is basically imparted into the child, and that's exactly what it took. So here's Moses, raised as an Egyptian, brought up in all that he needs to understand his people. And uh, he's got the best education that the world could offer. He's really trained to rule in this country. Uh, He's trained as a prince. He's trained as a general. He really becomes the ideal liberator, not in spite of the slavery, but through it. Not in spite of the weakness, but through it. Not in spite of the murders and the social injustices, but through the murders, through the social injustices. Every bad thing that the Pharaoh is doing was used to bring about the ultimate design of God and his plan for good. God God is hardly mentioned, but we see him in control of everything. Now, the second part of this is even the stupidity of Moses Even the foolishness of Moses, he's intemperate, he's proud, he seemingly throws his potential away. He murders this person, he throws his potential away. But because he goes out to the desert, he learns humility, he learns maturity, and he doesn't lose his leadership potential, he actually gains. It increases, it develops his leadership potential. The book of Numbers says that Moses 
was the humblest man in all the earth. And that was the missing ingredient because when he was raised up as an Egyptian, he was proud. He was intemperate. But the book of Numbers says he was the humblest man. That was the missing ingredient. You can't train that in school. You can't train humility anywhere. You can't train it in a palace. You can't train it in the courts. You can't train it professionally. What does that tell you? Even Moses' foolishness, even his stupidity, those of us who sit there and say, I I messed up in life. My life took a left turn, and I made bad decision after bad decision. I was stupid. I look back. Why did I make these mistakes? Moses's, you got to understand this. Maybe you're growing up to be like Moses. Moses' stupidity sows the seeds for greater humility, greater, greater wisdom. When you look back in your year and you say, gosh, I was foolish. Lament those years. Wherever you are, you may not even be able to see what God is doing in your life. But when you look back, do you see that God is faithful? Do you see that God is implicitly and innately building in all that you need? All that you need. Now, what does that mean practically? It means first, and I want to respectfully, respectfully point this out, not in a cold way. You know, a lot of times you hear from preachers and they give you cold comfort. Trust me, this is not cold comfort. My father, he was murdered at a very early stage in my life. He was murdered in the streets of Philadelphia near Temple University. And so I have a very special heart for that school. And uh, I lived under a single mother pretty much for uh, uh, most, you know, all my life, really, in, in an era when single mom families were really put down. And so um, it's easy to feel unsafe. You don't have a father. You, don't, you grow up without a father. It's easy to feel unsafe. And you grow up with a lot of disappointments in life. Now, I grew up, I studied at some pretty good places, but my culture, so, you know, even in the church, if you think about it, even in church, single moms to this day are defenseless. And so I grew a heart for the weak. I grew a heart for the defenseless. If you know, you know, if you want to know what really ministers to me, this is the greatest assurance. This text teaches us that when God seems the most absent, when you're suffering the biggest disappointments, biggest, when you are anxious, There were lots of times of anxiety for me in my life growing up. When you're in times of anxiety and God seems absent, he's actually the most active. That's what I've come to see. That's what this text teaches us. If you're a slave growing up in this era, one day you're a slave and then you're free. You look back. Do you not see that God is faithful? That God is working for your good? That God is working for justice because he is a just God. But it's all behind the scenes. Even during the worst tragedies, things that are just inexplicable, things that you may not ever get to really understand why it's happening. It's turning you to weep, but eventually God is turning you to be free. Now this part, I guess it's going to slightly sound like I'm making light of it. My father passed away when I was about five. And so my mother, as a result, took me into the suburbs to keep me safe. That was the first time I saw the suburbs. And there I, she drove me a work ethic. And as I grew up, I went to college outside of Philadelphia. I studied in Boston. Uh, college, grad school, worked in Boston. Um, and where did I study in college? Undergraduate studies, I, I, served, I studied at, at Brandeis University. Now, Brandeis University was founded uh, a large part, Einstein, Albert, great Albert Einstein, he had a hand in developing Brandeis University because it's a predominantly Jewish university. It was founded during the time of, the, uh, of World War II. Einstein wanted to grant equal rights, an equal opportunity for Jewish children, Jewish boys, Jewish girls who were, who were basically growing up and, and uh, were experiencing hardships and racism during that time, anti-Semitism. And so, uh, and, and who's Einstein? Einstein came and defected out of uh, Europe, mainly because Hitler was running through Europe, was running through Europe, rampant through Europe, right? There was a devastation. And where was Hitler? Hitler came about because as he was growing up, he saw the devastation of his country during World War I. And so without making light, I don't want to make too much light of this. If you think about it, World War I, World War II, Albert Einstein, right? Brandeis University all happened so that ultimately I can be standing here preaching to you. That's your life. Think about your life. Think about your life. 
all the tragedies and the hardships that we experience, is not God faithful? Is God not faithful? Is he not good? Using all, even the worst tragedies, your good and for justice. Now, is it logical to say, well, I don't see any good coming out of this, so therefore there must be no good? Is that logical? Is that, is that wise? Is that logical? Is it, is it logical? Does it even make sense? Is it even intelligence to say, because I can't see any good in this, there must be no good? That's not wise. It's flawed because it's faulty logic, first of all, but it's also arrogant logic when you freak out because you don't see God in it or you don't see the good in it. If you're someone who's looking for an encounter with God today and you're afraid because you don't know how, you've got to look at this text. Here's Moses. This is Moses. He's being prepared to have this life-changing encounter with God. But God seems to be working in all these difficulties to get him to that point. I mean, he had to experience a lot of hardship before he even encounters God. We're not even at the place right now where he's encountered God, but lots of tragedies. Lots of bad stuff had to happen to him. Why? It's all in God's design. You cannot knock God out of his plan. There is no plan B with God, but he works with us as his people, as people with a will. And he's using our will and our decisions in his sovereign power, in his sovereign decree, what he's doing. is He's working working with people who have a psychology, who have a makeup, who have history in their lives. And so he brings Moses to the desert. He brings him through the wilderness. He takes him through hard times. What's the desert? You ever been to a desert? What's a desert? A desert is this place where all your resources are empty. Everywhere there is dry. It's harsh there. It's wilderness. It's hard times. There is no security in the desert. There's no refuge or comfort in the desert. If you've ever been in a desert in your life, if you've ever been through a wilderness period in your life spiritually, it means that you have no resources inside. You're dry inside. You're empty inside. You're hungry inside. You're thirsty and there's no resources. You're in the wilderness. There's hard times. It's easy to question where God is. It's easy to question that. But why do you think so often in the Bible people end up meeting God in the desert. If you're in the wilderness right now, if you're in the desert in an empty and dry place right now, you're being prepared. I'm telling you, you are being prepared to encounter God in your life. You wouldn't be seeking God unless God is actually seeking you. That's what that means. You have no resources if you're in a desert to even look for God. Lots of mirages in the desert. But you have no resources. You would not be seeking God unless he's seeking you. So you don't need to work to get his attention. You don't need to be so angry, so anxious. God is preparing you in the toughest times, behind the scenes, in your weakness. Do you feel weak? In your anxieties, are you anxious? In your suffering, are you having a hard time right now in life? He's preparing you through thick and thin, through the tough, difficult, bad circumstances. That's the context that God is working to encounter you. Now, last point. How is this accomplished? So we talked about what it is, slavery, freedom from slavery, freedom from a spiritual oppression that comes about, hard labor that comes about because you've placed something above God in your life. That's slavery. And, and salvation is freedom from that, to be set free from that slavery. Uh, we talked about the context. A lot of times that context, when these things get stripped away from us, when we go through hard times, difficult times, crises in our lives, when we're dry, we have no resources. Now, how's it accomplished? It's through the weak. It's through the powerless, not the strong. This part is amazing in this text. One of the main themes that we see through Exodus, and we see it over and over and over again, is God never works through the insiders. He never works through the people who are in. He only works through the people who, he usually works through the people who are on the outside. He works through the poor. He works through the marginal. He works through the excluded. He works through the weak, the oppressed, people who failed. God always works with and for the wrong person. That's what he's doing. He works through Abel, the younger son, not Cain. He works through Jacob, the younger twin, not Esau. He works through the barren woman, the older woman, the unloved woman. He works through Sarah, not through Hagar. He works through Leah, the ugly one, not Rachel, the beautiful wife. And how does God save the people in Exodus? If you look at this text, this is amazing. All the heroes in this text are women. Chapters 1 and 2, especially the portion that we read. All the heroes are women. There are only two men in this text 
right? There's only two men in this text. One is wicked, the other is proud, and he's foolish. The heroes in this text are all women. And what kind of women are they? They're midwives. In chapter 1, you have two midwives. Verse 15, they're given names. They're very significant. It's very significant that they have names. It's Shipra and Pua. The Pharaoh says, I want you to kill all the male children. Find ways of making it look like an accident, but kill them off. But they won't do that. The midwives won't do it. The most powerful man in the known world that day is making an order, and everybody's listening, but the midwives. The midwives won't do it. You know what a midwife was in those days? A midwife was usually a a woman who couldn't have children of her own. And uh, that's significant because it's a culture then where women who didn't have any children were considered useless, valueless, worthless, pretty much dead. They were cursed by the gods, they thought. They were very, very low socially. And in verse 20, it tells us that God rewards them. He rewards them in their faithfulness. He gives to them. He's compassionate towards them. He's giving to them. And God saves the people. God saves really all of, e- all of the Israelites. It begins before Moses is a hero in this passage, in this book, these midwives were the heroes. They were lower status than men, certainly, because women had no rights in those days. But they were lower than even most women. And yet everybody's listening to the Pharaoh. These women didn't. They performed an act of civil disobedience in the face of social injustice, and they stood up. Now, a lot of people say here, well, we live in different times, right? Come on, guys. We live in easier times, don't we? God used these midwives, the lowest of the low, social outsiders, gender outsiders, economic financial outsiders, and they became the progenitors to become saviors of their people in an age where that's just not commendable. It is remarkable. It is phenomenal if you think about it. Then you get to chapter 2. Two more women. You have Moses the fool, right? Proud, intemperate, foolish, murderous. Then you have Moses' mother in an act of civil disobedience. A woman who has no rights. She is a slave, commanded to throw her son in the river. She does but not exactly the way the Pharaoh intended, right? She creates this basket, as we read in the text. It's floating near this place where Egyptian women were bathing, particularly the Egyptian princess, the daughter of the Pharaoh. And what's amazing is this Pharaoh's daughter, the other woman in the text, is a Gentile. She is not religious. She is is an outsider from the Bible standpoint. She is a religious outsider. She is a racial outsider. She is Egyptian. She is but she demonstrates compassion and bravery. She defies her father. And she, an outsider, an Egyptian, a woman, becomes one of the saviors for God's people. That's an amazing thing. God uses a Gentile. God uses an old woman, a slave, an excluded woman. What does that mean? It means that if there's anybody in this room hearing this sermon, And they're saying to themselves, if you've been told, you know, you are a nobody, whether it's by your parents or somebody around you that makes you feel like a nobody, it doesn't matter. I mean, maybe you've been telling yourself over the course of years, I'm a nobody, I'm a nobody. If you place God at the center, this is what this text teaches us. Look, if you notice this, you never even know Pharaoh's name. The most powerful man, you would think that the most powerful man in the empire as one of the primary subjects and and characters in this narrative, in this entire book, you would think you would know his name. Commentators for hundreds of years have been debating which pharaoh it actually was. We still don't really know. I mean, you have a good idea, but you don't really know. Because the author intentionally put his name in. You think that was an accident? I mean, he named the two midwives, right? But he didn't name Pharaoh. You think that was an accident? That was absolutely intended. Absolutely intended. If you consider yourself a nobody, if you place God at the center of your life, you understand that God's grace goes to anybody who seeks it. God's grace goes to anybody who desires it. Especially because he works with the nobodies. So here you have three principles. Anything but serving God is slavery. That's how you identify what your masters are. God is at work even in the hardest times. 
That's how you know to really trust God and his sovereignty and his love and his compassion and his goodness. How do you break slavery? How do you break slavery? Because the very word slavery, slavery is not like you're grounded at home, right? You can break free from being grounded. Slavery means the very nature and definition of being a slave is you can't break free. You can't break free on your own. You are a caterpillar in a ring of fire. You cannot get out of this, right? The answer is this. If these people eventually look to Moses, and we're a lot like Moses, proud, intemperate. Some of us may have had great educations and great opportunities. Some of us not so much. We've all suffered, though. We've all been through periods of wilderness, Sometimes because or largely because of our pride, because of our intemperate nature, because of our egos, but other times because there's just suffering. We're just subjected to slavery. And no matter what, if these people eventually look to Moses for their salvation, we need to see a person to whom Moses points. What does this story that we're about to get into remind you of? Okay, I'm just going to kind of summarize it for you. The king decrees that all male infants be killed, but there's a child that is born, and he grows up to ultimately save his people through his weakness. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like a story that's familiar to you? A man who is rejected by his own people goes into the wilderness, comes out, and is anointed by God. Does that sound familiar to you? A man who was living in the wilderness for a while, comes out and returns to lead his people out of slavery. Does that sound familiar? That story sound familiar to you? A man who was placed under the sentence of condemnation and death, but the very sentence, the very death, the very sentence itself, because of the sentence, because of his weakness, he was raised up and he becomes king and leads his people to the ultimate freedom, to the ultimate promised land. He becomes the prince, the liberator, the ultimate redeemer. Is that a stretch or is it intentional? In Luke chapter 9, we're told that when Jesus Christ was transfigured on a mountain, you read it in your call to worship this morning, Jesus Christ is on a mountain and the disciples saw that he was filled with glory and two people appeared with him. It was Moses and Elijah. In verse 931, uh, chapter 9, verse 31, it says that um, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, they were discussing with Jesus his departure. We talked about this. The word departure is a weird word because when you translate it in the Greek, it actually means that they were talking about Jesus' exodus. The Greek word here is exodus. Moses and Jesus were talking about his death as the exodus. What does that mean? It means that Moses and his exodus and his liberation was great, no doubt. It was a great feat. But it was only social. It was mainly physical. There's a physical liberation for one group of people at one point in time in history, but it merely points to a greater exodus, the greatest exodus, because Jesus is the ultimate Moses. In Luke chapter 9, when he's being transfigured with Elijah and Moses, he's about to become the ultimate Moses, the ultimate mediator, the ultimate redeemer, the ultimate liberator leading his exodus to liberate his people from the ultimate slavery, which is what? Sin, wickedness, evil, death. Our death is a sentence. Because what it's saying is that unless you are absolved by the king, you are sentenced and condemned. That's what physical death really means. It is the ultimate slavery. John Owen wrote an amazing book, theologian John Owen, an amazing book, the death of death through the cross of Christ. What he's saying really in that book, an amazing book, very theological in nature, uh, but what he wrote in that was ultimately that through the greatest weakness of Christ, which was the cross, the greatest, he basically, the ultimate triumph, the greatest victory was to defeat the power of death through his death. The greatest act, an amazing poetic justice of sorts. For all eternity, for everyone. You see, Moses liberated his people at the risk of his life, but Jesus liberated his people at the cost of his life. The ultimate weakness. He died on the cross. Unless you see Jesus as the ultimate Moses, unless you see his death on the cross as the ultimate liberation, 
the lessons that I just taught you will destroy you. Now, how does that happen? First, first principle, and we're going to apply this right now. The first principle is what? You're a slave unless you serve God. If you don't see Jesus as the ultimate Moses for you, you're going to say, well, that means I'm going to be good. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to start reading my Bible. I'm going to start to pray. I'm going to obey the Ten Commandments. What are you doing? You know what you're doing? You're being your own Moses. You're being your own liberator. You're still taking your life into your hands, and you're saying, I'm going to put myself in a place where I can cross the bridge to God. You're being your own mediator. You're trusting in the quality and the commitment of your own ability. That is not working through weakness. That is working through your ability and strength. It's Jesus' service that saves you. It's Jesus' record that replaces your record, not yours. But you're going to stay a slave, really, if you think the quality of your service is what gets you into heaven. On a given day, if you feel good about yourself because you served well, that is bad. You know why? Because it is going to, that's going to lead you to slavery. And the slavery is what? Misery, disappointment, fatigue. The slaves are tired. They're working and working and working. You're going to only be as good as your last victory. Think about that. There may be some brief comfort, some brief exhilaration, but in the end, it's work. It's work. Or you're going to just work hard. I'm going to get rich. I'm going to find comfort. I'm going to find love. I don't know. I'm going to find some form of escape. I'm just going to live a good life that way. You know what you're doing? You're still being your own Moses. You're strangling yourself with the principle, and that's why you're exhausted. That's why you're bitter. That's why you're angry. That's why you're anxious. Only when you say, save me, Jesus. Because of your record, not mine. Because of your service, not mine. Because of your obedience, not mine. The quality of my service will never be enough if you trust in the ultimate act of servanthood. When Jesus Christ at Gethsemane said, not my will, yours be done, all the way to the cross. And he goes all the way to the cross. That's how you're going to break free. That's how you'll break free of the need to serve. Jesus subjected himself to become a slave to death. He died. He was oppressed. He was beaten. He was chained up. He was held. He was imprisoned. He got the crown of thorns, right? He got the thorns. He got the suffering. He got the torment. And yet, was God absent? Was God absent? We're going to get into this. Second principle, God is is at work behind the bad things. Without Jesus... Without Jesus, when you hear that, that's not going to really help you. The notion of God being at work in your life is way too abstract. Bad things are going to happen to you. And you know what you're going to say? You're going to say, well, I know that God is not working for the good, you know, but I don't really see it. You're not really going to feel it. You, know, you need to trust that. But how are you going to trust that? You're going to, you know what you're going to be like if you just say to yourself, without Jesus as your mediator and as your redeemer? You're going to be like, if you've ever read uh, Voltaire as a Candide, you're going to be like Dr. Pangloss, that character in that book. The Leibnizian optimist, the guy who's constantly saying, oh, yeah, this is all for the good. Then something bad happens to him. Oh, this is all for the good. Then he loses his arm. Oh, that's all for the good. One by one until he finally dies, and he sees no good. That's how it's going to be, and it's going to make you tired. It's going to make you fatigued. You're going to be working. You're going to be struggling. You're going to be arguing. You're going to be pounding, and you know what? You're going to feel like you're in jail. You're going to feel like you're in prison because on one hand, you're supposed to trust that God is good, and on the other hand, you don't experience the goodness. And so you're going to be in prison and you're going to be bitter and you're going to be angry and you're going to be tired and you're going to be anxious. But when you need to see is Christ on the cross. You see, this is how it makes sense. When you see Christ in his suffering, when you see him suffering, when you see the very worst that he suffered and endured became the ultimate good for you, the suffering makes sense. Even if you don't understand it, the suffering makes sense. You know you can trust. Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, where is God? He is absent. And yet, he was present, working through even the lowest of that weakness, the greatest degree of weakness for you, so that he can be present for you. Do you, can you trust? What do you root in to trust that God is good? that God is faithful. Only when you see Christ suffering on the cross, God being absent from him on the cross, can you know and trust, even in your darkest days, that God is involved and he's present. Lastly, without Jesus, in the end, you're going to get very tired. 
and you're, or you're going to get coercive and you're going to get violent because you're going to be proud and you're going to have to prove yourself. But Jesus shows us the reason that God loves the weak. How is salvation accomplished? Not by Jesus dominating, even though he could. Not by Jesus' force and might, even though he's mighty. He's the almighty God. It's Jesus not triumphing through subversion, but through his weakness, through him letting go of power, sacrificing, dying on the cross. That actually was his triumph. God worked through that weakness, not in spite of it, not going against it, but actually through the weakness, our chains of sin had been broken because someone had to pay that price, and Jesus paid the price. So his salvation brings us life. When we say, you know, when you say, oh, I'm strong, I can handle it, God, I've earned it. No, that's not, that's not salvation. Salvation is what? I'm weak, Lord. I messed up again. I need your grace. Even, I can't even do one thing right without your grace in my life. And I know you're present, and I can't earn it, but you give it to me. Will you give me more of Christ in my life? Because I'm a mess. I'm a failure. The more you try to hide that, that's your strength acting up. The more you try to cover over that with a good resume, that's your strength acting up. The more you try to assert yourself and subvert your other people, step all over the people to get ahead, that's your pride. That's your ego acting up. That is your strength acting up. But when you realize that you are loved, even though you are a sinner, then and only then will you be moved to a degree where you will stop judgment, you will stop trying to subvert people, you can have genuine compassion for people because they are just as weak as you. When you see your weakness, how can you not have compassion for weak people? Christians, Christians are, are wonderful when they cling to the gospel because of their weakness, no matter how skilled and talented they are. There's nothing more beautiful than a person who's tremendously skilled or gifted and yet really focuses on how weak they are. Because there you see genuine compassion. The skill is turned towards people, for people, for others. That's Moses. When he was proud, it was for himself. Out in the wilderness, for himself. But in that weakness, God worked, encountered him, and he went back for people, for others. Everything that he gained. Because the king became weak, because the king had a heart for the weak, because the king triumphed through weakness, he promises us, a new world. You know that a new world is coming. Eventually, justice will win. You know that evil eventually will lose. Sin will die. Only if you see that the person to whom Christ, uh, the person to whom Moses points, Jesus Christ, only when you see that will the principles of Moses not strangle you. The law will not strangle you then. The law is there to show you that God is active in your life. In Jesus Christ, you can serve him and be free. You can trust him no matter how bad things get. And you can really, absolutely, and truly be hopeful even though you see the reality of who you are in your weakness. Can you do that this week? Can you do that? As we approach this table, let's remember. You know what this table reminds us? We're weak. That's why something from the outside, you take it, you eat it, has to come in. Because you're weak. If you had not had a meal before, you don't have a meal, you're hungry, you're weak. That's why Christ demonstrates who he is as a meal. Let's share in this meal together as we approach the table and pray in closing. Let's pray.